the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Hello. Hello. We are back again. Welcome. Episode four. Yes. That seems odd. I know. We're almost established. Not establishment, though. No, never. Never. Um, Thank you so much for all your comments, your suggestions, your likes, your listens. Um, As always, we are very grateful. Um, We have actually started getting requests for topics, which pleases us enormously. And today we are doing something slightly different. We are taking up two of your requests. So our friend Dr. Rhys Tranter suggested that we look at the Trump phenomenon. And other friend Dr. Akhila Yachuri suggested we look at the sedition debate with Modi's India. We are combining them, talking about them in the context of the concept or idea of fascism. And we'll focus on each one individually a bit, and I think provide a little bit of context on both ends for listeners who might not be fully aware of some of the events that are going on. But the goal is to bring them together, to examine them in one theoretical frame or sphere, Yes, and we we have planned this as a two-parter. So this is the first part of what we might call fascism in the 21st century, in which we are looking at the way fascism uses the concept of the nation and the nation-state. And then next week we are going to look at the people who are excluded from that view of the nation-state. So put together, hopefully we will begin to examine these various movements and to what extent they can accurately be described as fascist. Yes. So we are starting with the work of Umberto Eco, who sadly sadly died recently. Just last week. Last week. And we are looking at his his theory of er fascism, of eternal fascism. And he gives a very interesting fourteen point guideline as to the common characteristics of fascism. He's very emphatic that fascism should not be a, an easy label that can be picked and dropped and picked and dropped and placed up in a variety of different contexts. He he has this wonderful phrase that fascism is a fuzzy form of totalitarianism and the specificity of each, each context needs to be borne in mind. Having said that, there are these characteristics which apply to fascism across periods and across geographical contexts. And we've taken the, these 14 characteristics and sort of collapsed them into a few categories, and as I said, we're going to look at nation today, and the excluded next week. So what's our first category? Our first category, we're talking about the idea of traditionalism, and what Echo calls anti-modernism, which sounds, at the face of it, like just conservatism. That's mm. just what conservatism mm. is. But it's actually more specific, um, and a bit more insidious the way that it works. We visited this briefly 
two weeks ago when we were looking at homosexuality in India. Yes. And the way tradition and the concepts of tradition work. So how does this concept of traditionalism apply to the Trump phenomenon, for example? Trump in particular mobilizes a very vague and nebulous vision. It's a very, very fuzzy, blurry vision of a pure traditional America, an America that existed at some point in the past. It's unclear exactly when. Pre-1865, I think, is, is what commentators are saying at this at this point, but there's an, an overarching narrative of, of a past that needs to be recovered. And that past is, it goes beyond nostalgia. I think, you know, we've talked about nostalgia quite a bit, but I think that this is something different. It's not, it's not the same. And Trump really has, has worked this angle. Um, I mean, his, you know, his, his tagline, make America great again. And everyone has, has said, well, what does, what did great America look like before, you know, what is, what does that mean? But for Trump, that doesn't matter, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. It's about instating a system now that is about undoing the contemporary state Mm -hmm. and the mechanisms of the contemporary state with very little thought to the future or to the past. It's interesting. I think one of the things that links perhaps Trump and Modi is this rhetoric of an imagined great national past. And the way the evoking of that great national past allows them to be, in many ways, be fairly unpatriotic in the present. Yes. So Trump has said things like the American dream is dead and, you know, we are losers and America's, the world is laughing at us and, and on and on and on. And Modi has or certainly more the supporters have said and done, done similar things Yes. about how contemporary India is a less utopian version of, of something that once was. Yes. It's interesting as well how gendered that language is. There's, we've talked about this a lot with regard to Hindu fascism, but Trump mobilizes it as well, which is, which is, you know, America or India as, as a man who has been emasculated and the nation has been emasculated, which is so interesting because India as well relies very much on, on mother India Mm. and a a feminized idea of the nation state who needs protecting. Mm. And so these different gendered ways of describing the nation's past don't always match up. Yeah. They're very. And the ways in which mother India needs protecting involves protecting Mother India from the scary outsiders who are threatening the the security and sanctity of the nation and the scary insiders who disagree with them, who are, in their disagreement, are betraying what the nation stands for. Yeah, which is something we'll talk way more about next week. We are. So one of the things, one of the interesting things to me in the way in which Modi and uh, we should say we are using the the name Modi and the name Trump to mean more than the individual people. Yes, we are using them to represent the sometimes diverse woolly movement that has sur- that has risen up surrounding these these people. Yes. So one of the aspects of the way Modi's form of of fascism or what we are calling fascism works is to pick up on 
events, characteristics, histories, traditions, that at first hand appears sort of progressive. So one of the things I've noticed recently is an increase in commemorating the Bangladeshi independence struggle. Mm, yeah. Because that day has been marked as the International Mother Tongue Day because the, the Bangladeshi independence movement was based around a language movement and the right to, be, to, to use one, one's own language. And that, you know, largely progressive cause has been taken up by Modi and Modi supporters in a, in a much more uncritical form of nativism, an yeah. uncritical form of anti-West. So, you know, the, the, the demand to use your language as opposed to English, the coded consequence being using English is somehow treasonous. Yes, a challenge to the state. A challenge to the state. In the United States, there's... I mean, for, for many, many years, there's been a pro-English mm. movement. There is mm. a conservative wing, mm. um, I think, that, that has been fairly mainstream, mm. that that argues vehemently for English-only driver's license tests, mm. English-only forms, English-only ballots. Mm. And there's the the assumption or the you know the the kind of implication of all of this is that it's anti spanish language yes. there's a very clear language that's being targeted yeah. but i think you know if we were to include arabic or yeah. hindi or yeah. urdu or yeah. pashto or you yeah. know any language that that many immigrants to the united states might speak yeah. and be comfortable using yeah. would also fall under that that category of being un-American. And you have the, the the corollary in India, which is the Hindi language movement. Yeah. You know, as opposed to using regional languages or as opposed to using southern languages specifically. And the use of the Hindi language insofar as it is derived from Sanskrit and purging or cleansing, yeah. uh, within big scare quotes, Hindi from Urdu words or yeah. Arabic-derived de words. So on the one hand, you have this pro, this pro native tongue movement, but on the other hand, you have a but that native tongue should be a particular form of Hindi, please. Yes, yes. and anything that isn't Sanskrit derived is is suspect because it isn't immediately identified as Hindu. Yeah, it also the the language movement reflects another another particular form, which again quite topical. There's been there's been a rise in in a, a sort of crusade against Valentine's Day, which is odd given our critique of Valentine's Day last week. Yeah. But this critique of Valentine's Day comes from a very different position, which is, an, again, an uncritical anti-West policing gender roles where, yeah. you know, a, a, a woman's decision to, to send a Valentine's Day card or to have a, indeed have someone to celebrate Valentine's Day with is seen as suspicious because she's not playing the role of a of a desire, the desired role of, an, of a good Indian woman. And again, I will say much more about this next week. Yes, and of course, if, you're a, if you are a gay man or a lesbian woman in India, as we've talked about... You don't even figure that out. Do you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's... It, in terms of the way in which Trump and Modi together construct the nation, it reminded me a little bit of Hannah Arendt, who we're going to visit periodically this week and next week, and her landmark book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. 
and Hannah Arendt was talking specifically about the about mid twentieth century fascism and Nazism. So, with the anti-Semitic connection being being the important the important mode that that takes, and Arendt writes, quote, "The anti-Semites who called themselves patriots introduced that new species of national feeling, which consists primarily in a complete whitewash of one's own people." and a sweeping condemnation of all others. Does that resonate with the Trump moment? Yes, it does. I think as well, Trump, one of Trump's features, um, according to his supporters, is that they have never, ever had someone to rally around before. So they are, they kind of mobilize that invisible majority feeling but that's not really a term that they use so much but there is a feeling i think with trump that this is the media attention and the cohesiveness of the movement is quite new so we don't yet see a uniform for example but we do see a mob-like attitude i'm thinking specifically of the case where Trump supporters beat up a Black Lives Matter mm. protester. I mean, that is a horrific case. And I, f- I feel like, I mean, everyone who listens to our podcast will, will think that. But I feel like some of this activity and behavior and rhetoric is becoming so normalized that it's important that we say it out loud that that is a horrific case. And also you said we haven't seen a uniform yet, and we haven't, but we've come close. So if you, I mean, certainly looking at video footage of Trump rallies, there are... Possibly even literally jackbooted security guards. Yeah. There to police anybody who who might be there as a protester or who might not be immediately, visually, obviously a Trump supporter. And, you know, hint colour of skin is a factor there. Yeah. And you have the same matching thing or, or a very similar thing with Modi and, and Modi's supporters who are mobilising this feeling of having to demonstrate your patriotism, having to demonstrate your your the fact that you belong. Yes. Because if you don't agree with them, then you don't belong. Yes. And it's not just that you don't belong in the club, it is that you don't belong in the nation. Yes. And the distinction is quite clear. It's quite explicit. Yes. You know, that it goes even beyond Bush's if you're not with us, you're against us. It, it takes it to a new extreme. It really does. And I think the other thing that both Modi and Trump do, I think, is to stress the fact that they are making this connection explicit, the connection between disagreement and, and treason, and treat, and treat that as a badge of honour. In other words, they are saying what apparently everybody else thinks, but are too afraid to say. Yeah. So it's the, it's the courage of plain speaking that I think... Yes. Both Trump and, and Modi are, are capitalizing on. Yes. I read a Facebook comment today um, in between reading a lot of articles about Trump and all the various articles that have been published about how Trump lies and steals and makes things up and changes his tune and is deeply inconsistent. And this Facebook comment said, at least he's honest. None of the rest of them are honest, and he's honest. And it's like, well, it actually doesn't matter 
that he's not honest. Yes. And she probably knows that he's actually not honest. Yes. What matters to her is that he is speaking offensively. Yes. And that it is seen to be plain speaking. Yes. What's interesting, too, is the the idea that these are these are the ideas that everyone has. It's just that Trump is the only one saying them. Because, of course, in that discursive strategy, you are creating this everybody who agrees with you. Yeah. And by repeating the this is what everyone else is thinking line, you are delegitimizing the voices of everyone who doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Like us. Like us, yeah. Yes, so... And I would imagine... Yeah. Most of our friends yes. and families and people around us. Yeah. One of the things I find interesting is the way in which this courage of plain speaking that assumes a, a sort of heroic status. And I think Trump claims that, right? He claims that the mantle of the leader as hero. Yes. Oh, yes. He definitely does. He's trying to mobilize, and it's so ironic given him. He's trying to mobilize the cult of personality. Mm. And he has one, and it's it's so strange. I mean, I'm thinking of those videos of his rallies with the small girls dancing in uniforms and singing a pro-Trump song that is quite nostalgic of her. It, it channels war songs from the 1940s. And it's this celebration of this war hero, Donald Trump. Didn't he say at one point that he considered himself to have served in the war because he went to a military-themed prep school? Yes. Yes. And there's this need to identify with the army. And if you can convincingly do it, then great. And if not, you have to find a way of doing it. Because the the muscular nationalism that we were talking about earlier on... Yes. ...relies on a military force. Now, the military yes. force may well be the army, the actual government army. But certainly in the American case, and also in the Indian case in different ways, it doesn't have to be. It can be other forms of armed force. Yes, I think... Well, the United States has always had a a particularly complicated history with the idea of the militia. I mean, that goes back to the origins of the United States as a nation. So there's a nostalgia at work with the militia, but there's also a practical, ideological kind of practice around militias. And Donald Trump, weirdly, in this kind of contradictory sense identifies with the military in some way, but he also rejects the military. He's quite insulting towards veterans, and he, he challenges and insults actual war veterans who are politicians' war records. Yeah. And he has gotten away with doing that, and it's seen to be unprecedented. But in fact, it's quite a libertarian view, which is that no arm of the government should have too much power. That that the government and the military, neither one should have too much power because that isn't the American way. I mean, yes. that's this, this libertarian ideology. Of course, in Trump's imaginary utopia, mm. that is replaced with an authoritarian figure who is 
who is Donald Trump. Yes. Um, and his supporters seem perfectly happy to allow him that position. But he does mobilize the suspicion of the military in a way that I think other other conservative candidates have been unable to do. And, as you said, the, paradox, the paradoxes that the suspicion of, of military, of the U.S. Army, is supported through other distinct armed forces of their own. Like yes. The, we, they are actually mainly men, but women as well, armed and arming themselves and practicing and preparing to defend themselves against the U.S. Army. Yes. Yes, there are. Um, the conspiracy theories about military drills and military practices is being the real deal, and the military is going to take over. Yeah, the, the the best one I heard was Obama planning a coup to take over Texas. Yes. He's the commander-in-chief. Why again would he need to do a coup to do that? Texas is his. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, I mean, you know, the, the it's easy to mock. Yes. It's easy to laugh, but there is a direct connection between these fringe groups and this man who, at this point, is looking likely to be the next Republican candidate for president. Yeah, you know that that connection is is a is a clear one. Yes, yes. I'm trying to think more about the military connection. I wonder as well how much of how much of the 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 current Trump supporter attitude towards the military is an extension of anti-Obama feeling that because because the president is the commander in chief and President Barack Obama has mobilized the military as any commander in chief does, it's seen as being his army. Yes. It's his military right now. Yeah. But as soon as it transitions back to Republican hands, mm. this pro militia anti military stance could change. Yeah. I mean I don't know that the libertarian perspective is always that wars are very, very costly and the go it's the government meddling too much yes. and, and they're un undemocratic. Mm. So there has always been a very conservative anti military position in the United States, but I do wonder sometimes if the current anti-military sentiment that we see has very much to do with the person who is in charge of the military right now. I think I think that's a, that's a, a a very good point, and it's a very good point that helps illuminate the differences between the Modi movement and the the Trump movement. Because of course, the Modi movement is in power. Yes. So it is much easier for the Modi movement to idolize the Indian National Army. Yeah in a way that it is much more difficult for Trump supporters to idolize the US army. Yes. And this idolizing of the Indian army has you know it's 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 achieved a, a joke meme status where I saw, I saw a tweet about Indian debate at the moment consisting of person A saying you can't do X, person B replying why, person A saying because the army died dies for us in Kashmir. Yes. And that is that is essentially what so much of the the debate has been reduced to where any criticism any disagreement with hindu nationalism is proof of treason which is then compared 
to the heroic sacrifice of the Indian soldiers in fighting terrorism or fighting Pakistan or, or whatever. Yes. You get that in a more standard conservatism in the United States. There is a very, very kind of strong pro-troops support base, especially among people who have never served. Mm. Very strong among many mm. people who've never served, especially young people, which makes, which makes quite a bit of sense to me, given the U.S. military's the U.S. military's role in the world, you know, for the last however many years. But I think the pro-troops conservatism in the United States is part and parcel of the way the American democratic discourse works. It doesn't feel particularly fascist to me. I don't think that it is. I think what's different about Trump is he sees himself and his supporters and his non-governmental militias yeah. as being the proper replacement for the military. That distinction applies in, in India as well. So um, one of the problems with discussing this this movement is that it is not a movement. So Modi might be the, might be the head of the government, and he might be the most obvious figurehead of this political movement of Hindu nationalism. But there is also a whole separate paramilitary organization, which is the RSS. And the relationship between the RSS and its political wing, the BJP, is sometimes at least apparently fraught. And the RSS is absolutely a fascist paramilitary organization that models itself fairly obviously on German Nazi and Italian fascist paramilitary groups. Yes, they're overt Yes, in their mobilization of Nazi rhetoric. And I guess one of the things we are trying to figure out is when the Hindu Nationalist Brigade eulogize about Indian army soldiers fighting and dying in Kashmir, is there uh, an aspect of the overt fascism that exists in the, in the RSS paramilitary units that is being transferred to talk about the Indian army as a whole? a mechanism for eliding the Indian army with the paramilitary yes. forces yes. by by creating a discursive and affective link between the two, they then become the same institution. Uh, yes, and I think that the, the, the link is heroic sacrifice. Yeah. So in the same way Trump or the paramilitaries are sacrificing, in the same way... The RSS ideology yeah. is to give yourself up in sacrifice for the for the protection of the Hindu nation. The army is doing the same thing. Yeah. And it reminds me a little bit of the infamous Falange slogan, Falange being the, the Spanish fascist party yeah. before the Spanish Civil War and during the Spanish Civil War. But the slogan was Viva la Muerte or Long Live Death. And it's this, the heroism of embracing the ultimate sacrifice yes. in the cause of the nation. Yes. Which is a, a discourse we see all the time in, in Modi's India. And Echo talks about it as well. Is it good to die for the nation? This, this question that he as a child answers in a, in a debate. And he debates well and he says the answer was positive. Yeah. I was a smart child. Mm. And I think it's interesting with this idea of sacrifice because Trump does position mm. himself 
as a martyr in some ways for the American people because he is making the sacrifice of running for mm -hmm. office. Mm -hmm. And for him, that is a huge sacrifice because it takes him away from his money-making activities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so he de he has actually twisted his lack of military service into a sacrifice as a public official. Yes. And so it is it is there. Mm. But I think that it is not it's not quite as obvious as the RSS if that makes sense. Yes. And it's the sacrifice of the leader or the army in the cause of the nation then gets contrasted with the critics whose lack of action emasculates them. Yes. So the armed man who's a soldier, who's a hero, who's the leader is the model of masculinity to be followed and the critic or the scholar or the intellectual is effeminate and a danger to the nation. Well, I am. Yes, we are. <laughs> and I guess this is the, other, the the next plank of of our discussion, which is the, the importance of the primacy of action over yes. thought and the suspicion of thought, the suspicion of intellectualism. Yes. And you have a, a, a sense of anti-intellectualism which is masquerading as anti-elitism um, which I think connects both Trump and Modi. Yes. How does it apply to Trump? How does it apply? Well, I think it's at the very heart of what Trump is doing. I mean, we've talked already about the plain speaking. Yes. The kind of, the belief that the language that's being used can be understood by mm. anyone. It's not exclusive. It's not exclusionary. Mm. Of course, it does the exact opposite. Mm because of the content of what's being mm. spoken. But the Trump mode is to celebrate his lack of formal education. Mm. Yes. And I mean, Fox News laid the groundwork for this in branding Barack Obama mm. as an elitist because he was an Ivy League educated mm. lawyer and editor of the Harvard Law yes. Review. And so he was too smart to be president. Yes. That was a genuine... Criticism. And it was also criticism in connection to George W. Bush, right? And Bush's folksy manner. Yes, which he, he turned on mm. specifically. Mm. It's interesting, I think, because, I mean, Echo talks about George Orwell and Newspeak. And Newspeak in 1984 is the language that is taught in schools and that is taught to children. And the idea is that a simplified language will keep people from thinking critically, mm. from thinking mm. too hard, and therefore keeping them docile. Yes. And it's, it's definitely a 20th century fear, I think, this, this fear of, of dumbing down the population, this fear of, of um, this anti-intellectual movement taking over. We see this in Orwell and we see it in Huxley and we, you know, any science fiction, it's there. Um, you know, night Fahrenheit 451, they're burning yeah. books. And, but that's, it's still relevant because yeah. there is always a kind of move back towards, towards the folksy pastoral 
uneducated, you know, life, the streets are my education. Mm -hmm. My life is my education. My life experience mm -hmm. provided me with my education. The school yes. of hard knocks. Is, yes. You know, I've heard plenty yes. of middle-aged men say to me. Which is, in the, in the American case, discursively fascinating because, you know, the idea that, that someone with, with the wealth of a Bush or a Trump can label someone like Obama as an elite is ridiculous. It's farcical. But it is really interesting how effective that charge is because it comes or rather relies on a fundamental societal mistrust of the intellectual. Yes. And this is this is something I think needs needs unpacking. For those of you who don't know, one of the one of the political contexts or, or specific political events that has led to our discussion today is the recent attacks on the Jawaharlal Nehru University campus, JNU University in Delhi. The university campus was invaded by the police. Student leaders were arrested on charges of sedition. And I'm going to ask you to say a little bit about, about the specific charge of sedition in a second. But the, the university and its staff and students, a, a particularly notably left-wing university campus, yes. is being singled out as anti-national because of its intellectual production. So before we go any further, do you want to s tell us a little bit about what sedition involves and where it comes from? Well, sedition is a colonial law. It's a colonial concept, or it was mobilized in this way by colonial governments. And the, the purpose was to control and manage colonized subjects. So the idea was that speech, speech, could potentially lead to illegal action. And therefore, the speech and the thought needed to be regulated in order to manage the potential threat. And this is always a threat of rebellion. I mean, the colonial state was constantly, especially in India, because there was a very, there's a relatively small number of, of white European colonial officials in India. And so there was always a fear of a potential rebellion. And so sedition was a technique to control discourse among a colonized population. It's interesting, of course, as post-colonial people, how the laws have been revamped, in a sense, for this purpose. In a way that, re that replicates the relationship between the colonizing government and the colonized nation on the one hand, and the post-colonial Hindu nationalist nation-state and the university. Yes. Th those two binaries are presented as the same. There's a, there was a, a moment, uh, uh, an incredibly revealing moment, when in order to protect the nation from the threat that this university represents, it's the police were were not considered enough, so they needed to they needed to deploy the army, and the specific armed unit that was deployed was the BSF, the Border Security Force, which, in that gesture, reinscribes the university campus perimeter as a as an, an a national border as a borderland as a borderland between the Indian nation and the university, which is fascinating. You see a similar. A similar thing at work with the UK government. Um, 
with the proposed policy to restrict universities' policies on on speakers and who could come and speak at a university. Um, this and they used the words anti-extremism to frame this particular law. The universities weren't having it and the leaders of universities in the UK are, are quite powerful and so this particular piece of legislation has remained kind of on the table but never never enacted. Um, but it's a very similar feel in the sense that it's it's the Home Office, which in the UK is responsible for immigration. And it's the Home Office that's making these laws and telling universities how to behave, who they're allowed to have on their campuses, the kinds of, of discourses they're allowed to represent, and the kinds of discourses they're supposed to keep quiet. It's, it's a similar logic in, yes. in a sense yes and and it's also a similar logic that uh justifies the other bit of legislation that has been making the headlines in, in britain recently which is to stop publicly funded researchers from lobbying for policy change because again you are you are separate discursively and and legally separating out the the university as as distinct from the national body politic yes so the university is being isolated from establishing connections with and trying to influence the direction of the nation state yes and we've seen this in other in other places particularly um with climate change scientists lobbying the government in other in other countries. I know Canada, this was a very big issue, yeah. particularly in the, re the most recent election in Canada. Um, but this isn't, it's not specific to the countries that we're talking no. about in any way. And it also s suggests that, you know, neither of us are particular fans of either the current British government or the previous Canadian government. But I don't think we would necessarily equate them with Modi and Trump. No. And Modi and Trump's form of fascism. So I think one of the things that we are we are beginning to see is that one can have particular fascist undertones or particular modes of discourse that are underpinned by a logic that is fascist without being a fascist party or fascist government. Yeah. So I think there is something fascistic about the British government's desire to control its academic researchers. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily call the British government a fascist government. Yeah. I probably wouldn't either. Mm. It is interesting as well, the the current legislation. The reason that it matters and the reason that we're talking about it is because the government at the same time in recent years has instated a very overt and strict policy about demonstrating what they refer to as impact in academic research. And impact is very much tied to your research's impact on government policy. So they have proposed to make it illegal to impact on research policy, but have tied university funding and 
modes of career progression in university hierarchies to a clear demonstration of impact. So they are they are proposing to make it legal, make it illegal to change government policy. So presumably, then impact will be defined as agreement and justification of government policy. Yes, which actually a number of a number of academics have already written and spoken about the impact agenda. Anyway, for mm. you know years and years, there are mm. people who've been going blue in the mm. face trying to say this that the only way to change policy is through gradual through gradual means that that it's very difficult for a researcher or a research group to present evidence and have a government which presumably makes policies based on a very complicated relationship between ideology and evidence for a government to just turn around and do a U-turn and say, oh, we were wrong about that because we didn't have the right evidence. Thank you so much, academics, for telling us that we were totally wrong. They don't like that. You know, so demonstrating impact has been difficult for people who are recommending changes to policy anyway. This just formalizes it. Yes, and if, I mean, if we're going to be theoretical about it, in other words, if we're going to bring critical theory into it, then um, one place we could go to, I think, is the theories of the intellectual by um, the Italian Marxist thinker Antonio Gramsci. Yes. And Gramsci questions this notion of the intellectual being a class in and of themselves. Yes. And I think that is what Trump and Modi specifically think of when they think of the intellectual. They think of the intellectual as a class. And that class is then coded as elite. Except for Gramsci, of course, intellectuals come out of every class. Yes. And there is nothing that links intellectuals in and of themselves. What matters is which class they come from and how much their intellectualism is defined by their particular class position. Yes. So for Gramsci, the intellectual who comes from a working class background is best placed to in-state change or to cause some sort of intellectual paradigm shift or political change. And that, of course, is precisely why the Modi government and the, the fascist paramilitary forces are attacking this particular university. As one of the student, student activists, the, the vice president of the students, students' union, said, this has never been about nationalism. It is that the reason why the JNU campus and staff and students on the campus are seen as threatening is because you can get a postgraduate degree there for 250 rupees a year. 250 rupees is £2.50, dollars a year. And that is precisely the problem. That is that. So the reason why Modi and Trump are mistrustful of intellectuals is not because they're elite, but the polar opposite. Yeah. Because the the expansion of intellectualism, the expansion of education across class boundaries is what they fear the most. There was a, a particularly revealing moment of attack when right-wing hacker groups attacked the university, JNU University website. And the one bit of the university website they took down was the library catalogue. <laughs> because that is the thing that we should prevent access to education. Going back to Hannah Arendt, who we've already encountered today, Hannah Arendt talks about the question of 
of the intellectual and the elite in, in respect to totalitarianism. Uh, and again, quoting from a book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, one of the greatest advantages of the totalitarian elites of the 20s and 30s was to turn any statement of fact into a question of motive. So when intellectuals dare to make statements about the world as they see it, that those statements are being coded as treacherous because the statement of fact is being turned into a statement of motive, the motive being undermining the nation-state. Yes. And there is a really interesting discursive strategy which we have experienced personally in making comments about our home or the, the political situation back home where I have commented on Facebook, for example, about something that is happening in India and the response has been, this isn't real for you. You are only engaging with this on an intellectual level as a as, a, as an intellectual theoretical exercise, where actually for me, I live back home, I live here, this is a, a, a matter of daily reality for me, and therefore my opinion is of more value than your opinion. And of course, as we have said many, many times, we are only too conscious about the privileged position we are speaking from. But the privileged position we are speaking from demands that we question our subjectivity we question our position it doesn't mean we don't get to have a say it's interesting i mean you're with this particular this particular topic you've been quite vocal um and and quite active in discussions and debates and sharing news articles and sources about what's happening and in that way it seems you know more important and more timely but i get told all the time oh, you're an academic, you don't live in the real world. And I'm like, what do you mean? I pay rent, I eat food, I'm subject to immigration control like many people, I have a partner. The, the number of times we've both heard intellectuals as a category in opposition to taxpayers. And reality. Yes, because we don't have jobs, clearly, and we don't earn money and we don't pay tax. And it, it goes back to that same material discursive move to portray the university as separate from the nation. Yes. Right? The fact that we both live and work in universities means that we are deprived of our right to speak on matters that are not within the university. Yeah, matters pertaining to other people's lives. Yes. And we... Say again, we are aware of the privileged position we have within a university. But the attack on the university and the attack on intellectualism is not an attack on privilege. It is an attack... On thought. On thought. And it is an attack on critical thought. I thought that is critical of that view. On that note, we are moving towards the end for our first episode. And it's a seamless link to next week, where we will continue this discussion of groups, individuals, collectives, who have to be silenced in order for this fascist nation-building to succeed. Thank you for listening. Thank you. See you next week. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well, well.